0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Cineposium podcast. My name is Alex Apicello. And I'm Martin Ibarra-Ramos. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our show. Every week, we invite another member or collaborator of Cineposium to present a remote film program. If you follow our Instagram account at Cineposium and or our Twitter account at Cposium, you'll be able to keep up with our programming posts published every Thursday, as well as potential live tweeting and calls for audience slash follower questions regarding the films that we program. Our weekly podcast episodes include programmer presentations and answers to audience questions that come in to be shared on the subsequent episodes. Last week, I presented a program of James Wan's unrated cut of Saw, and it went
1: really well. And actually, we did get a follower question on Instagram, so we can address that now. Um, MG Maz asks, how does the idea of torture you talked about on the podcast translate to Saw as it went on and kept getting more excessive slash sequels have to be bigger thinking?
0: Um, I'm actually really glad to get to talk about the sequels, because the sequels are sort of at the root of my preoccupation with the Reverse Bear Trap, um, specifically as it functions as an object of fantasy contributing to the torture porn label. Um, So, like, let me explain a bit. So, like, the Reverse Bear Trap is probably one of the most visually memorable aspects of Saw, at least when compared against, like, the other methods of torture that are being used outside of the bathroom. Um, and understandably as such, the sequels really drew inspiration from the reverse bear trap. The concept of traps itself, which has sort of become synonymous with the franchise, that really only emerges out of the sequels and the torture porn elements in those films. It wasn't something that came from the first film. Saw 2, for instance, um, opens with the death mask slash Venus flytrap mechanical torture device, which similarly to the reverse bear bear trap is fastened to the victim's head and then like a Venus flytrap plant like snaps together to kill the victim. And that's a trap, that's a torture device, and that's fantasy, just like the reverse bear trap. And each of the sequels actually begin to escalate from there, going from having one major mechanical trap in Saw and Saw 2, to having three in Saw 3, and then Saw 4 having almost every single trap be a mechanical fantasy device. And as the number of those fantasy traps increased, so did the tendency for the films to shift away from that detective thriller vibe that the original film had, more towards torture porn. Because let's be honest, by Saw 4 at least, like, you're not watching it so much to find out the mystery of who the killer is. As much as you are, you're just watching it to see 10 people die in fantastical ways. Um, so like, what happened here is that the sequels began to up their torture porn intensity, which then began to reflect onto the original Saw film, which is comparatively low in the torture porn department in the first place. So that's, that's my take on the, on the sequels, the torture, the fantasy, and the reverse bear trap. And thank you for your question, MG Maz, and I I hope I was able to answer it.
1: Yeah, that was excellent. And I want to chime in really quickly and say, too, that like, so this is a perfect example of something we want to do moving forward. So, um, you know, after you hear today's program, please, uh, you know, comment on our on our posts on Instagram or on Twitter or even email us and um, send us in more questions and we will answer them. We will bring them up. So please continue to do this.
0: Looking forward to next week, our scheduled programmer is another member of Cineposium, Ben Lee, who has a program in the genre of science fiction, so be on the lookout for that next Thursday. Um, But for this episode, our programmer is my co-host, Martin, and without further ado, I'd like to invite Martin to present his program.
1: All right. Well, thank you, uh, Alex, and hello again, everyone. Um, Thank you for listening to this program. It's one I'm quite excited to share with you all, as it is centered on a film genre I'm particularly fascinated with. Actually, it is a subgenre of the larger horror genre called folk horror cinema. And in fact, this program is partially a presentation of the subgenre of folk horror as much it is a highlight of the films I'm programming for you all. First, I'll briefly describe the folk horror subgenre for you because I've recently realized the term is not as widely used as other genre identifiers outside of the arena of horror film enthusiasts, scholars, and journalists. So folk horror cinema covers a range of film eras subjects and themes it was initiated and is still most frequently used as a manner of illustrating concepts of national identity and relationships to landscape a combination of central elements and themes can be found in films falling under the subgenre including nature spirits agricultural festivals fertility rites, human sacrifice and pagan cults some common themes found in these films include ritualized performances, herald intoxicants, innocent people lost in the woods, or by chance witnessing a pagan ceremony, and finally, landscape with an evocative power. My interest in this area of cinema stems from a deeper interest in topics of religion and ritualism. Perhaps it is also in consideration of how the subgenre treats paranoia and trauma. I find that films in this area tend to help us learn something about ourselves about looking at a frightening or traumatic past, and helping us understand how to proceed in an uncertain or even terrifying present. Regarding the films I am presenting in this program today, I would argue these qualities of storytelling are absolutely present. For my program, I am focusing on two films directed by Kanedo Shindo, which qualify under the full chorus subgenre. Those are Onibaba and Kuroneko. Bonnie Baba was released in 1964 and is noted as one of the films to shift horror cinema in Japan into both the supernatural and the rural. The film follows a pair of women, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, who work together to survive poverty and loneliness, as they wait for the man that bonds them to return from war. It is also a comment on differences of class and surviving the effects of war amidst poverty. So these two main characters live together in an area of reed beds, secretly killing stray samurai warriors returning from war in order to loot and sell their equipment. The film is probably best known for the iconic warrior mask seen on much of its promotional material, including its Criterion Collection DVD cover art. It's, it's quite a frightening image and contains an indelible design and expression. Now, the mask element is also the closest the film gets to ideas of the paranormal. What is much more prominent throughout the film is the element of rurality, tied to the supernatural. That is, rurality which conjures the most malevolent traits of the characters in the film. In fact, the film opens on a wide shot of a frame filled with a bed of reeds, where the film generally takes place, then cutting to a deep, dark hole in the ground nearby, as text appears on screen in the form of a poem, speaking to the darkness that emanates from the hole, which has, quote, lasted since ancient times. Therefore, the emphasis of landscape is immediately present and communicated in the film from the beginning. Furthermore, there are various sequences in the film in which the motion and the sound of the reeds are emphasized, combining for a more realistic setting, as well as one that becomes uh, more and more visually horrific in quality. The idea here, which is one that is a fundamental element of the folk horror uh, subgenre, is that landscape is often used as a subtle contrast to the eventual violent and disturbing points of the narrative. The crescendo Onibaba takes toward darkness and violence is catapulted by Shindo's delicate attention to environment, making this a strong example of a folk horror film with powerful and horrific earthbound qualities. Four years later, in 1968, Kanedo Shindo would make another horror film that qualifies under the folk horror subgenre, Kureneko. Kuroneko is a film about two vengeful ghosts of a woman and her daughter who take out their rage on a series of wandering samurai returning from war. The film is similarly centered on a combination of spiritually aggressive qualities in landscape. In fact, this film also opens on wide frames of rural areas with trees, bamboo, and branches that are heavily brushing in the wind while a sort of ritualistic, percussive composition cues over them. Again, suggesting the evocative and spiritual power of the landscape the film is set in. Also central to the film is its narrative revolving around Japanese folklore. More specifically, and I apologize if I'm butchering this pronunciation, onryo, which are vengeful spirits or ghosts of those who were abused in life, and in the case of Kuroneko, the aforementioned ghosts of the mother and daughter, who were themselves violently abused and murdered, and have come back to enact revenge. Often these folk stories involve those whose rage is so great it cannot be contained. The film translates its title as Black Cat, getting to the point that with this film Shindo puts more attention into the supernatural element. Actually its original title is translated to Black Cat from the Grove, but it was released in the states as just Black Cat. Uh, The vengeful women ghosts in the film are reincarnated as violent powerful cat demons who prey upon the wandering samurai. Therein, the stronger attention to mythology and the supernatural, in this case, vengeful spirits, leads to a more ghostly visual presence, as well as an even stronger quality of violence. The black cat is a familiar and popular reference in Western folklore to ideas of supernatural forces. However, in the case of Japanese folklore, there is one different concept that is common, in that some felines have a knack for mimicking other creatures, including humans without giving too much away, this is something of importance in the film. To reiterate, Kanedo Shindo practices with numerous elements central to folk horror themes in both Onibaba and Kureneko, including evocative powerful landscapes, folklore influences, and rituals, leading to the worst of circumstances for innocent visitors or wanderers. To wrap up my program, I'd like to briefly make mention of the rise of folk horror in contemporary cinema. Recent films, such as Ari Aster's Hereditary and Midsommar, Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse and The Witch, and even Annabiller's The Love Witch, are all films that do fall under the subgenre, incorporating some of its central elements and themes. Some of these films have indeed drawn a lot of attention at the box office and earned much critical acclaim. This is a subgenre that seems to be in a state of rejuvenation. Therefore, if anyone listening to this has seen and has enjoyed some of these films I've just mentioned, I implore you to watch Onibaba and Kuroneko as a sort of examination of two of the earlier films which really started to illustrate the ideas and themes that are so rich in the folklore genre, which the aforementioned contemporary films I've mentioned are so influenced by. So with that said, I sincerely hope our listeners enjoy these films, both of which are available via the Criterion channel, which at the moment is offering a free 14-day trial. So if you're interested in seeing these films but don't subscribe to the Criterion channel currently, you can take advantage of the trial to see the films and also give the platform a test drive. If anyone has questions about the films again or about full cinema in general, please reach out via our social media platforms or email and I'll happily answer some of those questions in our next episode.
0: Thank you for that fantastic program Martin. I'm actually super excited to watch these films because something that is just permanently embedded in my mind is the visual elements of these films and it it comes with I feel like something to do with the genre since you've mentioned other films such as um, The Love Witch and Midsummer, which also contain like these just really brilliant, super vivid visuals. And Oni Baba and Kuroneko just have that same element, and it's phenomenal.
1: Absolutely, I think it's a common trait among all these films is the evocative, visceral experience through through visuals. And Oni Baba and Kuroneko both um, have this very rich black and white um, imagery to them that really, really intensify and heighten everything that's going on. So. Really recommend really all of these films if you haven't seen any of them. But specifically again, Oni Baba and Kurneko. These two films are fantastic films. If you enjoy the other films I've mentioned in the genre, really, really recommend. So,
0: thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode of our show. If you enjoyed this, please follow our podcast on Anchor or Spotify. You can find the link to our profile page on Anchor and our Instagram bio. And again, please follow us on Instagram at Cineposium and on our Twitter at Cposium. If any of you have any questions related to Onibaba, Kuroneko, and Martin's program, feel free to DM us on either platform and we'll address them in our next show. Also, if you're interested in subscribing to our weekly e-newsletter, email us at cineposium.ucla at gmail.com. Again, that is cineposium.ucla at gmail.com. Thank you, Martin, for preparing this remote program for us. And thank you all again for listening. Until next time, take care, everyone.